Well, if you saw the post I put up before this live broadcast, you would see in the comments, I put up an outline there, just a picture of it. You can download that or do something to get a copy of it. It seems that Facebook makes it go away. Now they kind of go back and forth between having it stick around or having it go away. So uh, right now, the last couple of ones have gone away. So if you want to get that outline, make sure you get it as soon as you can. I'm looking quickly at it for myself. It looks like it is still there as far as I can see, but I don't know how long they wait until they delete it. Five minutes, 15 minutes. By the time I've uh, gotten done here in the evening, the last few weeks it seems to have been gone. Well, in that post, we told you about some conversations that you may have had with people in your life that it feels like you're talking to a wall or use some kind of a phrase like that to describe it. Seems like whatever it is you say to them, they respond back and it's like they didn't even hear you. You may, uh, you may sometimes just run away from these conversations. You may see them come in and say, ah, oh, not in the mood for this, I'm not ready for this, I'm not up for this, whatever it might be that you say, and you avoid it at all costs. Well, how would you like to be told to speak to dry bones, not even any flesh on them? And that's what God has told Ezekiel to do here. He, um, We're going to take a look at this. This is probably one of the most well-known prophecies in the book of Ezekiel, and maybe even in the Old Testament. But for Ezekiel, people seem to know the prophecy of the dry bones before they know anything else. So let's let's pick this up. And if you saw the post I put up before, I recommended that you get some extra paper because there's some things here at the end that I couldn't fit in the outline, but you may want to write them down. So if you do, just have some paper to be able to, to do that with. All right, it's good to see you folks joining us. I see a few names popping up there. Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to begin at verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit, uh, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, oh Lord, you know, he's kind of throwing the question right back at him. Lord, you know whether these bones can live or not. So he's going around this valley. God's taking him around. He sees dry bones. So these bones have uh, dried out. Sounds like they have even been scattered around the valley. And God points to him and says, can these bones live? Well, if God's going to ask a question like, <clears throat> a question like that, more than likely the answer is going to be yes. But Ezekiel throws it back to God. He's, uh, he knows, I can't tell you what you're going to do. If, uh, if you want them to come back alive, they will. If you don't, they won't. Because uh, in Ezekiel, there is no power to do this. So with man, this is not possible. But with God, of course, all things are possible. Verse 4. Again, he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now he tells him to prophesy to these bones. 
you will wonder how in the world can the bones even hear? The ears are gone. The soul in the person is gone. How are they even going to hear? But God says to do so, and so Ezekiel does. He begins to prophesy to these bones. So while these are still dry bones, the Lord says to them, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So God's envisioning this already. He sees the bones. He sees they're dry. He sees they're scattered all around. But he says, I can see the end product and I can see that these are coming back alive again. So Ezekiel prophesied to these bones and say to them, now Ezekiel obeys. It's got to be thinking, boy, of all the dead audiences you gave me so far, this has got to be the worst. He's spoken to people who wouldn't hear the word that he spoke. But because God said it, he did it. So verse 7 says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. What I really think is interesting about this is that these bones do not start coming together. The skin doesn't start to form. None of that happens when God speaks it. It begins to happen when Ezekiel does. Now, when the, when the worlds were formed back in Genesis, that was God speaking. When the earth's curse up that was upon it was lifted, when he said, let there be light, that was, again, God speaking. But here, God spoke, and it didn't happen until man spoke. So that was before we had the covenant with, uh, with man. We had the uh, people could refer to it as the lease for Adam. That authority was, was given him. There are some things that God needs us to speak. And until we speak them, even though he has spoken them, it doesn't happen. Make sure you speak the things that God has, has spoken over your life. Don't just say, well, God said it, so it's going to happen in my life. No, you need to speak it over your life. You hear the words from God and you begin to speak it into your life. You may have dry bones in your life. That's all right. Speak over them the words of God and watch life begin to enter into what was dead. So the miracle of life begins as he speaks. Again, he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Can you imagine being out there? And prophesying this word and seeing bones come from here, there, and begin to come together. And each bone knows where they're supposed to go. And they fit into the right spot. And then as you're seeing all the bones come together, and then while the frame is there, the skin comes, the flesh comes. And now you have a bunch of corpses laying around the field. There's no life in them. They certainly are better shaped than they were before, but there is still no life in them. Well, they're supposed to hear the word of the Lord. And you 
kind of wonder, oh, they're just dead bones. Can they really hear? It's not for us to determine whether something can hear or not. It's ours to determine to speak it. Let the hearing be done by the hearer. If God says they'll hear, they'll hear. Jesus spoke to a fever, and the fever listened. He spoke to a fig tree, and the fig tree listened. The word of God was spoken to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea listened. So many things were spoken, and those inanimate objects listened. One time Moses struck a lock. The second time he was supposed to speak to it. Of course, we know that he struck it. But can a rock hear? So, hear the word of the Lord. If dry bones can be expected to hear, then those that are alive can as well. So those people that are around you that have been resistant to the gospel, been resistant to the message of God, seem like they resist you every step of the way as you try to be a testimony for Him. Just keep, keep speaking the word. Don't quit. Keep going. Don't make a decision that the bones can't hear. Keep speaking the word that God gives you. I put this in your outline as the only blanks that you have here for tonight. If you want to fill these out. Hearing what is false as true will cause me to hear what is true as false. Let me say that to you again. Hearing what is false as true will cause me to hear what is true as false. We think back to the earlier chapters in Ezekiel. And the people of God, the people of Israel, they had a choice. They could listen to Ezekiel or they could listen to the others who spoke things opposite of Ezekiel. These were saying things that Babylon won't destroy Jerusalem. Babylon won't come and win. There's going to be a deliverer. Egypt is going to come and deliver. God's going to come and deliver. But Babylon will not destroy Jerusalem. Ezekiel said they will destroy Jerusalem. They will burn it with fire. And they will take the rest of the people that are there. And they will take them captive. They will kill many. And a handful will be left in the deserted land. Because they listened to the false prophets, what Ezekiel spoke, the true prophet, they saw as false. Those who would receive Ezekiel's words as true would see the false prophet as false. That's why I put this in your outline here. Hearing what is false as true will cause me to hear what is true as false. How I hear a thing, whether I hear it as false or whether I hear it as true, does not change the truth that is in that, that belief, that is in that statement. Either a thing is true or it is not true. Whether I believe it or not makes no difference to the fact of whether it's true. Ezekiel was a true prophet. He spoke true words from God. If people believed that, it helped them. If they didn't, it didn't change the fact that Ezekiel was speaking truth. We know in science and centuries gone by, many times they believed false things, things that the earth was flat, that the earth was the center of the universe. Things like the sun revolved around the earth. They believed these things. They thought they were true. Because they thought those things were true when someone came around and said the sun was the center of the universe, 
or our universe. They saw that as a lie. When people said the earth is actually round, not flat, they saw that as a lie. They saw it as false. If you accept what is false, what is true will look false. That's why we have to be so careful. Here at the end, we're going to give you some help on determining, have I accepted something as false as true? I asked the Lord about this and said, well, how, how can you tell? Because if you are so convinced of a false thing being true, then that thing that is false will hinder you from seeing what is true. How can you tell whether it's in there? Seems like we're stuck in a rut. But there is a way out. We'll get to that there at the end. I tell you to make sure I don't forget, but you're not here. So we can't do that. Now, in Ezekiel's day, of course, there were people who accepted the things that the false prophet said is true. That changed how they dealt with Ezekiel. Some would see what he said is true, I'm sure. It was the same in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. Some people saw what Jesus was saying as as true. And when they did, he could do no wrong. But when they changed, when they said, no, he's, he's a false prophet, then nothing he did was right. Paul, he would go into a town and they would all say, oh, this is great. This is exciting. We're enjoying the things that you're teaching here. But then something would happen. And what Paul taught was false now. Just, it would just change on a dime. And there would be riots in the streets. They would be ready to kill him. They'd be ready to execute him. They drove him out of the city. Sometimes, one time they stoned him. Other times they threw him in prison, beat him. It is amazing how even Jesus would go from a place where they had to be restrained for making him king to the point where they wanted to crucify him. Paul and, and Barnabas, they had to restrain them from making them gods. And then they couldn't wait to throw them out of their city. Same happens in our day. We are no, no exception to this. Let's keep going on here. We're at verse 9 in Ezekiel 37. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now can you imagine this if you were if you were Ezekiel, and other times you prophesied the things of the, that God has given you, and it would fall on deaf ears, and no one would listen, and no one would hear. And now you prophesy to a valley of dry bones, and all the bones come together, and the skin comes on. And then God says, prophesy to the breath. Ezekiel is commanded to preach to, and I put the Hebrew word in your outline, ruach. It is the breath, wind, or spirit. Commanded it to fill their bodies. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now imagine if you were Ezekiel and you were in this, this place that God had taken you. And you prophesied to these dry bones. You had been walking around. God had taken you around the place and you saw how dry these bones were. You saw how lifeless everything was. And God said, speak to it. And the bones listened to the word of God. And the skin came and listened to the word of God. And then God says, now let's not stop there. Let's prophesy life into these. And so he did. And all these 
bodies, all these corpses lying on the ground, they began to breathe. Blood began to pump. And they stood to their feet. And they were alive. Boy, if that doesn't tell you the power of prophesying the Word of God, of speaking what God has told you. Uh, we read about it, and it's a moving experience for us just to read about it. Ezekiel was there. <laughs> he watched this thing. I cannot imagine what that would be like. I imagine if we get to heaven and we sit down and we say, Ezekiel, tell us what happened. What, what was going on with you? I bet you he would never get tired of telling that story. What a, what a powerful thing to have seen. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones of the whole house of Israel, they indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Now he's emphasizing whole because up to now we've had partial uh, houses of Israel. We've had Judah and we've had the northern tribes of Israel. But he said, this is the whole house of Israel. We've got all 12 tribes represented right there in those bones. This is the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and perform it, says the Lord. So the people, this is after they had heard that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, that many of the people died, and more were taken into captivity. They felt that their hope was lost. And this prophecy was to restore hope for them. God is saying it doesn't matter how dead you think Israel is. It doesn't matter how dead you think the future of Israel is. I can prophesy to the future of Israel. And what looks to be dead will be restored to life in an instant. Because I'm God. And that's what he did here. We may go through 70 years of captivity. The land may be barren for 70 years, not yielding fruit. But God will speak it. And these fields of bones return into people. And the very people who were evacuated from the land will fill it. Now there were three prophetic words here. One first one was to the bones, the second one was to the breath. And the third was to the people. This, this word ends with a future promise of where things will go, giving them hope. So God always wants to do, He gives us hope. But again, the word of the Lord came to him in verse 15. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourselves and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So we got two sticks. The first one is Judah. The second stick is Joseph or Ephraim. Now the northern tribes are often referred to as Ephraim. Uh, some pronounce it Ephraim. I heard Ephraim more, so I'm, I'm more default to that one. But 
he's going to have these two sticks. He's showing the two parts of the nation, the southern tribe of Judah, the northern tribe of Ephraim, the rest of the tribes of Israel. Verse 17, Then joining them one to another, then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah. And I will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. So God is saying, in one hand we have Judah, in one hand we have Ephraim, and we're going to take them and we're going to join them together so that they form one. But as his, his wording here is that Ephraim, or the northern tribes, are joined to the southern tribes. More than likely, this is because Messiah comes from Judah. And Judah would be the reigning tribe. The northern tribes broke off from Judah and God is bringing them back in and they will once again be be United Nations. Now, you may just, this is just sort of a side note for you. It's not in the outline at all. You don't have to write down any of this if you don't want to. But the Mormons cite this section of Ezekiel as proof that the Book of Mormon is of God. According to the Mormons, these sticks are scrolls. And the stick of Judah is the Bible. And the stick of Joseph is the Book of Mormon. The the two sticks become one to symbolize that these two books coming together as complementary scriptures. Now talk about reading into a passage. (laughs) That is really reading into into quite a passage there, but that is certainly what they did. Now the, again, the Ephraim is the the one stick. Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern tribes, he came from the tribe of Ephraim. That may have had something to do with them being referred to as Ephraim being the, the reigning, or the, at least the leading of the tribes, but they were also one of the more powerful ones. Uh, verse 20, And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. So this is the promise of what's to come. You're going to be made one nation. You're going to have one king. That king will reign over you forever. He won't be replaced. A lot of times in Israel's history they would have a good king and he would be replaced by a bad king. And the nation would go away from God until they got a good king again and that good king would bring them back to God. He's saying you're going to have one king and that king will never take you away from God. You will always be one to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and God Jehovah. He said they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols nor with their detestable things nor with any of their transgressions. Now, last week we were looking at the ancient heights, that the places in the mountains where they had the high places, 
These were ancient. They had gone back into the people of Canaan and maybe even before them. They were well known. Satan had taken and made some uh, very powerful high places in what he knew was going to be Abraham's land. So the people would always be drawn to go back into to tap into the supernatural power that had been there. And we saw last week that Edom had coveted this land. They kept speaking it out. They even spoke out things uh, that God had put in, into uh, operation, spiritual principles, that you may speak those things that are not as though they were. And so they began to speak those things that weren't as though they were. We have those mountains. They are ours. We're going to take them. And uh, don't use spiritual principles against the kingdom of God. It won't work out well for you and it didn't work out well for them. But they saw these ancient places and they wanted them back. But God says, now that you guys are going to come back to the land, those ancient places, those ancient high places, will never come back again. Israel would not be bringing them back. He says, you won't serve those uh, those idols anymore. You won't serve those gods anymore. Verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. A couple of different ways that that word, their dwelling places, can be can be translated. Uh, not going to get you, get into all of those details. I want to read this verse for you from the New Century Version. This is one of the ways that you can take the, these word dwelling places. Verse 23, New Century Version, They will not continue to make themselves unclean by their idols, their statues of gods which I hate, or by their sins. And then here's the, here's the part in question. I will save them from all the ways they sinned and turned against me, and I will make them clean. The uh, interpreters here in the New Century Version see this as God saying your dwelling places are the places where you have always gone to, the, the paths that you have always taken. I will save them from all the ways they sinned and turned against me, and I will make them clean. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. Now, remember in the previous prophecy, the shepherds were the rulers, kings and all those that would rule under them. Uh, they also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. It's one thing to know the things of God, but it's another to actually do them. And God is saying, uh, they will do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Of course, David, the servant David, will be referring to Messiah. This is not the first time that we've seen this used in Ezekiel or the Word of God. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now, he promises them a covenant of peace, that peace would be upon them. Now, the previous one, we saw that there was a prophesied peace between God and Israel, that there was not peace between God and Israel, and that's why all this had gone on. This one, he says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. This one seems to indicate not only is there going to be a peace between God and Israel, there will also be a peace between them and the people around them, the neighbors. 
that would be there, that they would not be driving them out, trying to get rid of them from the land. In Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 18, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you that were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Peace is important. God wants us to have peace. The enemy does not like peace. He likes war because people die in war. Bad things happen in war. Things are stolen. People are hurt. The enemy likes war. God likes peace. And as long as people follow after him and do the ways that he commanded, there is peace. There is peace between God and people, and there is also peace between the people and those that are around them. Now we can also see a peace between Israel and their enemies. In Isaiah 2 and verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of, our, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. A house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now many unsaved people try and use this scripture to say, you must disarm in order for there to be peace. God is not saying that. What God is saying is, I will establish peace, therefore there will be no need for the armament. But you see, the reason that people have always disarmed people in the past was so that the few that would have the armaments could rise up against them. Getting rid of your arms will not cause peace to come. There needs to be a ruler who himself is one of peace. And that won't happen until Jesus comes. In Micah 4, verse 1 through 5, Now it came to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God forever and ever. If you're a student of history, you will know that many leaders in the past have used fear of other nations, fear of other things, even fear of certain citizens in their own borders 
And they use this fear as a way to get the people to do certain things that they would comply with what the leaders wanted because the leaders had selfish ambition. We saw this, of course, with the revolution in Soviet uh, Russia when they, uh, when they overthrew the very harsh regime that was there, but they just brought in something that was just equally as harsh and just kept on killing people. China, we saw this in many of the regimes in China uh, for centuries and uh, even millennia in the past, and the things that they would do in there. The nation of Africa saw leaders use fear of all sorts of things to cause its citizens to function in a certain way. Uh, you name the country, you name the continent, you name the place, and fear has been used by its leaders to get the people to do things a certain way. But God won't do that. He's a God of peace. He's not a God of fear. He's not here to try and make you do things because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. He has shown us that He loves us. We learn His ways. We walk in His ways because we know that they are the best thing to do. And when He says you don't need to learn more anymore, we trust Him. And we go that way. There's no one in the world we can trust in the same way. He says two things will be established forever. First off, the people's presence in the land. Then when Israel comes into the land, their presence will be there forever. They will not be removed. This is when the king comes and takes over. The second thing is that God's tabernacle, or actually I put tabernacle, I meant to put sanctuary because tabernacle is used later. So I put it in parentheses in mind, but God's sanctuary, verse 5, for all the people, oh, I'm sorry, verse, um, excuse me, 26, let me go back there and read that. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now, the word their sanctuary is the Hebrew word, and again, my Hebrew is not a natural language for me. I'm much more at home with the Greek than I am the Hebrew. But the Hebrew word here is mikdosh. We see it uh, in Exodus 15 and verse 17. If you want to write that down, you can go look that one up. It is used for consecrated things or place, especially a palace, sanctuary, whether one for Jehovah or an idol, a chapel, a hallowed part, a holy place, or, as it is here, a sanctuary. Now, the word forever is the Hebrew word olam. It means forever or everlasting. It's used five times in these verses 25 through 28. It's the same word used to describe the everlasting kingdom in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Now he goes on in verse 27. It says, My tabernacle, and that is a different word from sanctuary. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The word here for tabernacle is the Hebrew word mishkan. It is a residence. It is uh, the tabernacle or the dwelling, dwelling place, habitation. This is, uh, one is talking about the building and the other is talking about the presence. You remember when they still had the temple, they had the building that was still present there, but the Spirit of God had left. Ezekiel gave the prophecy and said the Spirit of God had left the place. It had lifted up and it had gone someplace else. But God is saying that not only will the Spirit of God, the presence of God remain, but also the tabernacle would remain there and he uses the word forever. These The nations will also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. 
Now, there are 13 promises that are made to Israel in these verses 15 through 28. Not all are fulfilled in the first return unto Cyrus. Oftentimes with the, with prophecies, you'll see a partial fulfillment. And then the second time it's fulfilled, you'll see the complete fulfillment. This is done many times. Uh, probably the most, most noted was uh, Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled some of the prophecies that Antichrist would do. But Antichrist, of course, would come and he would complete, he would fulfill all of them. So many times there's a forerunner first and then there's one that comes after that. I'm going to read these 13 prophecies for you, or these 13 promises. This wasn't my list. This is a list I got from somebody else. But um, lists sometimes are good. Uh, first thought, the first promise was God will personally find Israel and gather the people from among the nations. The second, God will bring them into their land, into the land that will be restored to them. The third, God will make one nation of the two that had been in the land. The fourth, God will set one king over the nation. The fifth, God will ensure the unity of the restored kingdom and that will never again be divided. That was in verse 22. The people will never again serve idols. In verse 23, God will save them, cleanse them, and establish an intimate personal relationship with them. And again in verse 23, and people will walk in the obedience to his law. Verse 24, God will establish them in their land forever. Verse 25. Number 10, God will establish his new covenant of peace with them. Verse 26. Number 11, God will multiply them in the land and they will enjoy prosperity with peace. Verse 26, God will establish his sanctuary among them and personally dwell there forever is number 12. Again from verse 26 and 27. And number 13, God will make Israel a testimony to the nations of his saving grace in verse 28. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 33, 14 through 16. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will perform the good thing which I have promised into the house of Israel, into the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up into David. And ye shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So we see Jeremiah is also prophesying, also receiving words from the Lord. Oh, he's in a different place, receiving words in much the same, same way. So we've seen this topic come up before about letting in what is false, we talked about earlier here in this, this section. But in your outline, in your, at the end here, I ask you this question, would you speak God's word to what is lifeless? Would you speak the word of God to what is showing there is no life in something in your life? God has given you a promise. God has spoken something to you. Would you stand there and would you prophesy as Ezekiel did to lifeless bones? It's something that shows absolutely no sign of coming around to what God said to you about it. This could be a job. This could be your finances. This could be something going on in your family. There's so many different things this could be, but you've received a word from God. A scripture has come to you. God has spoken a scripture to you about that thing. Will you be as Ezekiel did and stand before a valley of lifeless bones and prophesy to them? Now, when you prophesy, you are calling for something to come about that's not there. 
He spoke life to these bones. And these dead bones became filled with life. There was two stages to it. There was one to where the bones came together and the skin came to the bones. The second one was so much, so important when life came into them. Because otherwise, those bones and that skin couldn't be supported. That even after you have spoken over that situation, spoken the words of prophecy, you begin to see something come together. Do not stop speaking to it. Just because you can see it come together, just because you see it begin to take form, just because it's beginning to take shape right in front of your eyes, doesn't mean it has life yet. You've got to stay with it until life comes into it. Ezekiel stood over those corpses, over those bodies that were dead, but they looked a lot more alive than they were before. And he spoke to them. He spoke to the Spirit, spoke to the wind, however you want to interpret that, that word. And the Spirit entered into each man, each woman, each person that was on the field there. Their hearts began to beat. Blood began to pump. Breath began to, came into their bodies. And they stood up. we got to stay with it until then. If you're going to have that kind of power, if you're going to speak to dry bones, you have got to have the Word of God. You cannot speak life to dry bones speaking any other word than the words of God. The word that the enemy gives you, fake words of God, they won't do it. They will not bring about the life that we need to see in those things. We have to know that we heard from God. And you've all encountered Christians, all who say, I know God told me this, and we can say on this, that, that is against the word of God. There is no way God would say that. And we know it's true, but that person just can't be convinced of it. They know it to be a true thing. So as we told you earlier here, if we accept what is false, what is true will appear to be false to us. If I accept what is true as being true, what is false will always appear false. But the enemy is trying to get a little leaven in Because if he can get a little leaven in, he can permeate the entire loaf and the whole person will become resistant to the truth. So we have this question. How can one infected with a lie come to the truth if they have become resistant to it? Now, it's not just true for myself. Sometimes I have accepted a lie on the inside of myself. How do I change that and get to the truth. It's also true for other people. We know folks that have accepted a lie, a lie about Christ, a lie about the Word of God, a lie about salvation, and you try and get something else into them and they are resistant to it because they believe something else to be true. But how do we get the, how do we get one infected with a lie to come to the truth if they're resistant to it? Especially since the lie makes them think they are resisting what is false. That is, that is the trickery of Satan. If he can get the lie into you and you think the lie is true, you will fight off the truth just as severely as you would have fought off a lie. Because you are that convinced that what you believe is true. 
So once you get to that point, how is it that we can help ourselves? How is it that we can help others? How can I know if I have allowed what is false into my belief foundation? So this is important. I mean, if it, it's good to have some people in your life that can speak words into you to help you get over this. That's great if you have that. But I've seen it before where people, they have people like this in their life. And then once this lie got in and got rooted, even that person was pushed out of their life. And they wouldn't receive anything from them anymore. So I pursued God on this today. How can I know if I have allowed what is false into my belief foundation? So I told you, bring extra paper for this one because I couldn't fit all this into the outline. So if you want to write these things down, go right ahead. If you don't get them all and you want me to text them, email them to you, let me know about that. I can, I can try and do that as well. Now the first thing you can write down, there are a total of five things here. The first thing that you can write down is all truth is of God. Anything that is true is of God. You have to accept that. If you do not accept that all truth is of God, there's no sense going any further. Here's the second one. Everything else is of Satan's kingdom or the flesh. My flesh is capable of some evil too. It's not just Satan. All truth is of God. Everything else, everything that is not truth, is of Satan's kingdom or the flesh. If something goes against my belief, this is number three, if something goes against my belief, the source of that belief will show in its character. This was the key. When God opened my eyes, I just don't say he didn't speak to me. It, it's just something that I, I, I was able to see in this. If something goes against my belief, the source of that belief will show in its character. Here's number four. Things that are of the flesh or the kingdom of darkness. This is the character of the flesh or the kingdom of darkness. Again, if something goes against my belief, if I believe something to be true, and that something is false, it is either of Satan's kingdom or it's of my flesh. Either way, it will manifest itself with the character of its source. So the flesh of the kingdom of darkness, these are the things you're going to see. Anger, violence, forced compliance, strife, bitterness, division, vengeance, condemnation. These are the things that will come from anything from the flesh, kingdom of darkness. That's not an exhaustive list. You can keep on adding to that. I kept on adding to it. Anger, violence, forced compliance, strife, bitterness, division, vengeance, condemnation. And I love it when we can go back into the Word of God and see the examples of it. We think of Daniel and his friends. When the King Nebuchadnezzar got an inspired idea of making a golden image and that everyone should bow down. And three people said, no, we're not going to bow down. We won't do it. That is false. That is of the wrong kingdom. That is not of the kingdom of our God. We will not submit to it. We won't bow down to it. And what happens is there was a forced compliance. When Nebuchadnezzar came out with this, everyone is to bow down. And if they don't, they go into the fiery furnace. It's a forced compliance. Anytime you see forced compliance, 
you know exactly where it came from. God does not ever force compliance to believe what he says. It is your free choice to believe what he says. There's consequences for not believing it, but it's still your free choice to believe what he said. He's not going to force you to believe. He doesn't want to force you to believe. Jesus often said, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's up to you. I'm not going to force you to do it. But when you look in the in the Bible, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are people who had beliefs in the word that came straight out of the pit of hell to bring people into bondage. And if people did not comply to these things, they would do things to force them to comply. To force them to go along. Back in the dark ages, when the Catholic Church was in so much power, they were forcing people to do things that were not in the Word of God. The thing that broke, I believe the the last straw, there was a number of things that Luther did not like, but the last straw was for him was the indulgences, where people were buying forgiveness. And that uh, was too much for him, and so that's when he went and he tacked the, uh, uh, his thesis on the door of the church, and of course he became public enemy number one. If people did not comply with what the Catholic Church said you needed to do, they would force compliance. This is what brought around, brought about the Church of England. I don't say it came about in a good way, but the king, King Henry, uh, King Henry VIII, I believe it was, he, um, the Catholic Church didn't agree with some of the things he was doing in marriage. And so they threatened to excommunicate the country. Well, that caused the people to rise up because if you excommunicate the country, then you can't receive the sacraments. And according to their beliefs, what they had taught the people, if you can't take the sacraments, you can't get into heaven. And so they were ready to rise up and to uh, lynch King Henry. And the, the Catholic Church knew this. We can force compliance. But this, is, this was a total untruth that they were trying to get the people to comply with. So what uh, King Henry did was, look, we're just going to create our own Church of England. And they did so. And the people were able to receive the sacraments. And so everybody was happy. And the Catholic Church just lost some power. They lost that battle. You'll see this with Paul's ministry. That Paul would come in with the gospel. He never tried to force anyone to accept the gospel. He never tried to force anybody to relinquish the, the things of the Jewish faith. To pick up the things of the Christian faith. He would present it to them. They saw the truth. You could follow but there are many people, they were called Judaizers, and they would follow Paul from town to town. They would cause riots. They would beat those who did not comply. You see, because if a, if a belief is under the flesh or the kingdom of darkness, going against it will stir up anger in those who believe it. It will move some to a place of violence. Those who have the power will force compliance to those that are under them. Strife will come about. Bitterness will be in the lives of those who hold on to this truth and see it being violated. Division. Vengeance. I'm going to get those people who have, who have said something contrary to this. Condemnation. These kind of things will go on. And it has gone all, all through history. We certainly see it even, even today that, um, you know, if people want to uh, protest that babies are being killed, all these things are ignited. 
against them. All the people who believe in the, what's called the woman's right to choose, which is actually the, uh, the right to kill the babies, when these things are, are aggressively come against or even a, uh, a march is done, you will see these people who hold dear the right of abortion. And they come in with violence. They try and force compliance. You will not believe that way. If you're a doctor and you didn't believe that abortions should be done, they would force compliance on you. You would lose your license. So it's not hard to see where that doctrine comes from, where that belief comes from. It comes straight from the pit of hell. They, they show it in everything they do. Even today, this is a, a much smaller thing, but even looking at the, today, some of the things going on with the, with the virus, it is not hard to tell which side God is on in this thing. It's, it's just not hard to tell. You just look at the, um, just look at the traits that are there. I've seen some, you probably have seen some videos where somebody who's not wearing a mask has been attacked by those wearing masks. You will wear your mask and they start beating them on. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. Why in the world do you force compliance on, on these particular things? And the people who are feeling like, well, I don't feel like I need to wear the mask and they just go on. They don't go try and ripping off the mask off other people. It's so easy to be able to tell this. Flesh or the kingdom of darkness, any truth, any lie that is passed off as a truth and accepted as a truth by the followers, you will see they will get angry when someone comes against it. They will be brought to a place of violence, forced compliance, strife, bitterness, division, vengeance, condemnation. All these things go on. We saw it go on in the Old Testament. We saw it go on in the New Testament. It just And you can pick just about any book in the Bible and you will see these things go on. As soon as Moses came against what the people believed, they wanted to kill him. And they wanted to get some, a new leader and head on back home. So that's the fourth one. Flesh of the kingdom of darkness. If something that is passed off as truth and accepted as truth, those who follow it be stirred up to anger, violence, forced compliance, strife, bitterness, division, vengeance, and condemnation. Now one thing that is tough to tell from this is that some of the people believe they're on God's side and believe that they are standing for doctrinal purity by coming against these, whatever the, the thing might be. And they're convinced they're standing up for God, just as Paul did. Paul was going out thinking he was, he was doing God's business by going out there and getting the Christians, putting them in prison, executing some. He thought he was doing the business of God. But he wasn't. Now here's the fifth one. When a truth, a doctrine, comes from God, it of course will be true. And it will reveal the things of its character. If something goes against a belief whose truth is founded in God, there will be peace, there will be loving correction, never forces the truth to be accepted, looks to enlighten, not enforce. There is always peace. Whenever we have a truth from God and someone comes along and does something different to that, 
we stay in peace. We don't get angry. Bitterness does not rise up on the inside of us. We just simply say, you can go that way if you want. And we just go on and we, we do our own thing because we're at peace. Peace will always be with the truth that comes from God. It will always be missing from to- truth that comes from another source. It's always missing. If we see someone who is not walking in the truth, like Apollos was not walking in all the truth as he was teaching the Word of God, he was pulled aside and loving correction was made. Hey, you don't quite have all the doctrine down on this thing. Can we show you some things? Well, yes, show me. And loving correction was made. If he would have said, no, you can't show me these things, they probably would have backed off. Probably would not have, have shared these things with him. Don't lose sight. If you have the truth of God, there will be peace. There will be loving correction. You will never feel the need to force that truth on other people. You will look for an opportunity to enlighten and not for a place to enforce. There were those who opposed Paul. As we talked about, there were those who opposed John. They tried to kill him, to shut him up, and they couldn't kill him, so they put him in isolation on the island of Patmos. There was James. They came against him. They did kill him. There was John the Baptist. The king didn't like what John was preaching, what he was saying about him. So he put him in jail. And of course you know that dance that went on. They asked for the head of John the Baptist and he was executed. Ezekiel, the people that came against him, Jeremiah, we haven't been in that book too much, but Jeremiah had a lot of opposition that came against him and continually tried to force him to be quiet. He even penned those famous words that he finally shut up with the word of God. He said, I didn't tell them the word anymore. They didn't want to hear. They kept abusing me, punishing me. So I just shut up the word of God. But he said, I couldn't. The pain of keeping it in, I believe his words were, was greater than the pain of putting it out. And so he once again began to speak the word of God. And once again, they came after him. One time they threw him in a pit of mud. And as he sank down into it, when they wanted to call him out, it took many a men with a rope to pull him out of that mud. He was sunk down into it so far. Moses was opposed. And any time the truth of God's word is opposed, it's opposed with force. You will comply. You will shut up. You will do what the majority wants you to do. That is always a telltale sign of the kingdom of darkness. You can see the signs of the kingdom of darkness more than likely. It's something you should stay away from. But you can do this test. If there is something on the inside of you that when someone goes against it, stirs up anger, moves you to almost wanting to do violence, you want to force compliance to the thing that you think is true. Strife arises between you and other people. You become bitter. Division sets in. Thoughts of vengeance 
condemnation come around. You don't have to have all these things, but some of these things would come up. If they do, that's the characteristics of the kingdom of Satan. Characteristics of the kingdom of darkness. If you have accepted the lie as the truth, you will see these things come about. It's just a great barometer to be able to tell. I've got something wrong on the inside of me. I need to extract it. Because as long as I keep whatever lie Satan has sent me my way, and I defend it as truth, I will stop the truth from coming into my life. I will guard against the truth in order to protect the lie. Satan knows this. He knows people will do this. He knows this is the way that they go. So he's always looking for an opportunity to get a lie, any lie. He doesn't care what lie it is. As Jesus taught, beware of the leaven and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were religious people. Religious leaders, beware of their leaven. Because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. You get a little bit in one section of it and it begins to permeate through the whole loaf. Pretty soon the whole loaf is infected with the leaven. And extracting it becomes that much harder. It is far easier to extract those beliefs that create the anger when they first come than it is to get them out later. But nothing is impossible to God. And as we saw in the beginning of this prophecy, even if that leaven had taken all manner of life out of me, prophesy the words of God. Speak life over the dry bones and see those dry bones become life again, become alive. The purpose of Satan's lie, getting inside of believers, is to cause the life that is in them to die. But you can guard against it. Keep it from going on. Father, I thank you that you help us to identify the lies that have gotten into us. Because if we have accepted a lie as the truth, then on that topic we'll never accept the truth because we'll always see it as a lie. But you want us to have the truth in all aspects of our life so that your peace will rule just as you promised that your peace will rule in Israel. It will rule because no more will a lie infect them. But the truth be written on their hearts. Your truth will be in them. They will know your ways. And they will do them, the Word of God said. Your truth is so powerful. I thank you that we can come to know it. And if any lie has worked its way in, I thank you that you gave us a way that we can spot it. We may not like extracting that lie. We have had a fond affection for it for a long time, maybe. But we can remove it. And our life will be better without the lie. Better with the truth. Give you the praise and the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.